Hello, everybody, and welcome. Few writers go as far into human darkness as Helen Garner, and yet she seems remarkably sane, <laughs> despite knowing the worst of what we're capable of. So I'm hoping that during our conversation this afternoon, we might find out a little bit more about Helen's state of mind during the arduous process of writing this House of Grief, as well as teasing out some of its most dramatic insights in the context of the current very urgent public conversation about the current epidemic of domestic violence. Please welcome Helen Garner. I'm not going to tiptoe around here, Helen, um, because, you know, you're so brave that I think one has to be brave asking you questions. Have you ever been subjected to violence as an adult? Has anyone ever hit you? Uh, my, no, I was, a, I was a child. When I was a teenager, my father hit me once. Um, he wasn't a hitting type of guy, but... Um, uh, and in my 20s, a boyfriend of mine slapped me once. Um, I, I never got over the father hit. I mean, I got over it, of course, but it was, very, it was a shock. Uh, it was in response to, I, I vividly remember the whole incident, that it was um, in response to extreme ins insolence on my part at the dinner table. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, anyway, so that was Dad, and he was kind of mortified as well, I think. But um, but uh, I had a boyfriend once who was the most gentle possible person you could imagine. And uh, I did some things which I'm ashamed to, and I'm not going to go into, I'm ashamed of. I deeply wounded and humiliated him, and he hit me across the face. We were standing in a park somewhere and he hit me and it seems to me that I fell to the ground but I don't really remember I was so amazed and shocked that he did this when I say hit me he didn't punch me he just hit me an open handed slap and that's about it good I'm glad it stops there <laughs> um how does a story get under your skin and how do you test the stickiness of the story in terms of, you know, you're going to have to make a big commitment when you write a book like this. So do you, in a way, negotiate that with yourself and, and try and see whether maybe there's a way of avoiding it? Of, of picking up the story? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm too dumb for that. I, I, I just rush, rush into it, especially if it involves a trial. I mean, if, it's, if it involves going to court, I just can't wait to get there. And, <laughs> and I, never, I never think... Actually, I'm really bad at thinking ahead. I, I'm not a good planner and I often get myself into um, situations that, in retrospect, um, I might... If I'd been a different sort of person, I, I might have... Had a, a sort of wiser uh, attitude. When was the first time you went to court? Because I, I'm thinking I remember the piece that you won the Walkley for in 1993, which was about the death of Daniel Valerio, yep. um, a little boy who was killed by his mother's live-in lover. Yeah. Was that your first experience of court? Um, well, no. I had previously a friend of mine's. Um, Stepdaughter was murdered in back in the what must have been mid eighties, and I went to court a few times with him just because it was so terrible, 
uh, and that, that was the first time. Oddly, it was the same judge who was... Um, the, the world of the law is actually quite small mm. in any given city. So, um, yeah, it was odd to see that judge pop up again uh, later in my interest in courts. But the uh, the Daniel Valerio story, yeah, that was what, what was that in the early 90s? It was 1990, but, mm. but yes, you won the award in 93. Yeah, well, I, I just read in the paper, this, this is how it usually comes about, that I read the paper every day and I always look at the court things. And I, I, I saw that this man had beaten a, a, a two-year-old child to death and I thought, how the hell could that happen? I thought, what sort of a person would do that? I thought, I'll just go down to the court. And, and, and it took me a while, like, like most people, um, I thought that you couldn't just walk into a court. I thought, thought that you had to get permission from someone or, <laughs> or, or be a journalist or, or have a, um, a, a reason to be there that, you know, that someone would... I, I used to think, when well, I'd walk in and sit down and I'd, and I'd think that any minute now someone would come to me and say, what the hell do you think you're doing here? Get out! And... <laughs> But they never did, and so it took me a while to realise that this is a democracy, you know, the courts are open, mm -hmm. anyone can go in, and, and I'm quite surprised at how few people realise that, because people often say to me, oh, how come you were allowed to go and watch that whole trial? And um, I thought, well, you could too if you wanted to, you just mm -hmm. walk in. Yes. All you have to do is bow at the door and bow on the way out, <laughs> and, uh, and that's all that's required of you except to shut up. <laughs> Basically. Yes, because you do describe yourself in this book as a curious citizen and that suggests that we too could all be curious citizens and, and do the same thing. But now it sounds as if you say when you kind of rush headlong as soon as you hear about these things that there is a sort of addiction mm. to being in that world. So what is it that you find so attractive and appealing about the world of the court? I... Once I figured out that I could sit with the journalists and not have to go up into the high gallery where... You, you, if you're up in the high gallery, you look down and you can just see a lot of wigs and gowns and people going... And blokes mostly. And, uh, and, but then when I realised if I, if I just barged in and acted like I was a journalist and I could sit in the journalist's seats, then I'm bang up against the actions close to, as I am to you now. And... Uh, there's, so firstly, there's that terrific intimacy that, that there can be with somebody else's story, mm. but also the formality of the court is very appealing to me. When I was young and hated and feared the police because I was a hippie and, you know, went on demos and got hit with truncheons and everything, I once did, um, well, I thought... I thought that it was stupid that they wore wigs in mm. courts. I thought, oh, they look ridiculous. It's the 18th century. Don't they know that two centuries have passed and, and they shouldn't be wearing those stupid wigs and what about those gowns and they're so up themselves and ridiculous. But now I feel strongly that those accoutrements of, um, of the law and of a court process are actually extremely meaningful and important. I feel that... They, what, what it's saying, if you walk into a court and you see the judge wearing a scarlet robe, you can't think, oh, he's just a bloke who's going to sit in judgment on me. What you see when you see a, a, a formal a costume is that person is representing the spirit mm. of the law. 
It, this is the law here. It's not just a bunch of, of employees or people who've been paid. It, 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 there's some spirit in the room. Well, I, I feel that very strongly. You say spirit. And the, the first thing that I think of in the way that you're talking about this is this analogous for you to a church where, again, the robes suggest a kind of an official role and there is a ritual? It's about ritual rather than... Well, obviously, it is a, a court is a place of power, but... Um, I don't go to church much anymore, to tell the truth. Mm. I, I find... But you did. I, I did, yeah, and I'm not ruling it out in the future either. <laughs> but but, um, but I, I got to the point with churches where... Do you want to go there? I no. Mean, no, OK. <laughs> not really. We've got other things to yeah, talk about. Yeah, <laughs> OK. Well, uh, there are things to say, but this might not be the place. I'm interested in the fact that there's quite a lot um, of detail in this house of, house of Grief about the camaraderie and the fellowship that you feel with the other writers there. But there are also little shards of hostility where people sort of snap at you as if you sort of swanned in as the kind of celebrity writer and they're there doing the hard yards. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about that kind of tension that you felt mm. being part of that pack? Well, the first thing to say about the journalists is uh, how generous many of them were to me. Uh, just friendly. And they would... Um, for example, one thing that... Um, The transcript of a trial, it's actually rather expensive to get a hold of it. To, afterwards, it costs, I don't know, it used to cost about $7 a page or something. So if you're a journalist, your boss paid for it. But I remember when I was doing, um, writing about the, the Joe Chinque murder trials mm. in Canberra, I had to um, go to, they privatised the court reporting too in, in, in the ACT. So I had to go to this sort of company and pay some, uh, some money to get photocopies of them. But uh, what happened, uh, one of the first moments of camaraderie in, in the Farquharson trials was this young woman came up to me and said, have you put your name on the list? I said, what list? She said, well, if you go to the judge's associate and give them your name and your email address, they will um, email you the transcript every night, free. I'm going, yes. So I went up and I, you know, they have to fill out a little form and they mm -hmm. say, you know, what, what is your reason for wanting this transcript? And... So I explained that I was writing a book and, uh, and uh, they said, sure, that's fine. So that meant that sitting in court every day, you see, normally if you're sitting in court and you, you haven't got free access to the transcript, you're writing madly. Mm. You've got to take notes of all of everything that's said. And it's terribly hard work and it means that a lot of time you're actually looking down. But because I didn't have to do that, I could depend on getting the transcript. When I got home from work every day and the transcript was there as an email, it was so wonderful. And, and so that meant that I could look at the jury. Mm. It meant that I could spend a lot of time and also looking at the witnesses and, and the other people, but, but it particularly freed me up to look at the jury and to try to read their facial expressions and body language mm. to see how the um, council submissions were affecting them. And uh, one or two lawyers who've read the book have said that they found the book in one sense, quite devastating because when they're in court on their feet, they're not looking at the jury. And so they some, sometimes don't notice that they've lost the jury's attention and the jury are yawning and going to sleep yes. and they've just had it up to here with the yellow paint marks. You know, they don't want to know about that one piece of evidence anymore. They're sick of it. Move on. But because the 
because counsel are, are on their feet arguing and thinking, they're not looking at the jury. Mm. Someone had told me that in America they have a, a member of a, a legal team is, is basically sort of hired to look at the jury. See, I'd be really good at that. They should. It's <laughs> <laughs> future employment opportunity. Did you find it sort of worrying, though, when, when the evidence did get dull and technical and some of the evidence in this case did get dull and technical and you did see people in the jury um, dozing off, did you sort of feel like shaking them and saying, you need to pay attention to every single second of this? I mean, did it worry you? You also said that at well, one stage you nodded off yeah, briefly. Yeah, I, I nodded off because there was something unbearable happening, as I recall. Right. I mean, I did feel kind of stupefied occasionally, but the thing about it, if you're addicted to courts, even the boring bits aren't boring. Even though something's objectively boring, I'm not bored. Because there's always somebody else in the room whose boredom you can observe. <laughs> and <laughs> sort of like you project your boredom onto them and you just sit there going, hey, I'm not bored. <laughs> I think one of the things that I'm, I'm most intrigued by is that as well as the way you observe the body language, and there's some beautiful details of body language in this book, is the way you're able to um, interpret a change of mood in the room. And I was wondering, what are you looking at? What are you seeing when the mood is changing in the room? Well, I don't know if I can answer that because it's actually more like a kind of something you feel in your gut. It's not like there's a... I mean, there, there are moments when you can see distress in the room, for example. There are some terrible moments in, in the evidence where people... You, you'd hear a strange sound like of rustling in the room at that, and I never figured out what that was. It, it, when some of the... When um, Farquharson, Robert Farquharson's ex-wife was giving her evidence in his favour in the first mm. trial, people were, were crying and trying not to cry. It was just so terrible and there was this kind of rustling sound and I could never quite find out where it was coming from, but it was almost like a, a kind of an audible anxiety and grief in the room. And sometimes, sometimes that, I, I remember, I think what you're referring to perhaps is at Farquharson's first appeal when I thought, no way they're going to overturn this, his conviction. But as the argument went on, it wasn't as if it... it it was working on me with, as reason because a lot of the arguments were quite um, abstruse and I didn't really follow them. But just, just you know, when you're in water and you, and you can feel a wave come, you can't actually see it, but you can feel... It was like that. It was... Well, it's like the audience, that you, the, the audience energy when you get a kind of feeling from an audience that yeah. they're hanging on every word yeah. or, or that you're losing them. Or, or, yeah. Or, yeah. You can feel it. And it's really almost impossible to describe... Which sense it is that's picking up that change of mood. So, to what extent, Helen, in this whole process, and you've done this so many times now. I mean, it seems to me that you're doing you're doing some something that is intellectual, where you're grappling with the sort of the narrative and the rational information that's being presented, but that you are relying a tremendous amount on instinct and mm. intuition. Is the first instinct that you have about someone like Farquharson or Joe Chinque? generally the instinct that you end up with at the end of the project? Oh, that's hard to answer. Because it swings and sways as the, as the submissions are made and as people are cross-examined. And, and you think, oh yeah, that guy's definitely telling the truth. And then the person who's going to cross-examine him gets up, gets up and t 
tears him to pieces. And Did you, you thought, want Robert Farquharson to be innocent? I wanted it not to have happened. Of That's course. what I wanted. Of course. Yeah, and I knew that that was absurd. But and but um, I. It's really hard to answer that question, because firstly, because it all happened seven, eight years ago. But there was this awful feeling that um, you, you mentioned before that the um, stabs of hostility from different journalists. Mm. And there was one journalist who's who, a, a journalist from the age whom I greatly respected. Um, and she had a thousand times more experience as a court journalist than I did. And she walked into the court absolutely convinced that he was guilty. And, and when I made my wimpy remarks, she would come down on me like a ton of bricks. And I would go red and start to shake because she was so sure. And I thought, can you be so sure? I mean, aren't we supposed to listen to the arguments before we make up our mind? And, and I don't know if I was just hanging on to it because it was just so terrible to me to think that someone would kill his own children, that I, I kind of couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the idea that, that he'd done it. But as the, the trials, even at the end of the first one, I was thinking, oh God, thank God I'm not on this jury. I wouldn't know which way to go. But the thing is about not being on a jury is that you don't have the conversations that the jurors have. I mean, every day they must go in there at lunchtime and, and at their break and they must be saying, what did you think of that? And, and comparing notes. And, and I imagine that as a jury turns itself into a, a functioning body mm. of minds and, and hearts, that, that must be the great privilege of being on a jury, I think, that you're part of, of a functioning group with this very, very serious, um, awesome responsibility. And as an observer, you, you aren't part of that. You're just sitting there on your own. And even though I had my young sidekick with me, Louise, who was really smart and clever, but she, she arrived at a position of thinking he was guilty mm. and stating it to me before I did. I think she thought I was a wimp too. Did you, um, after the retrial, have you, in the time since, in the intervening time, had any doubts? No. And I answer that tentatively because of the whole idea of what reasonable doubt is. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's doubt and there's reasonable doubt and there's beyond reasonable doubt. And people write books about it. What the fuck is reasonable doubt? There's books written about it and, and nobody can define it. And when you hear a judge trying to, to, trying to define reason, reasonable doubt for a jury, you can see that they don't really know what it is. Mm. That, that's part of the fascinating thing of, of a court that although it's supposed to be a place of reason uh, and there's laws written down in black and white, um, in actual fact, the whole room is a... It's, it's like tides go in and out while you're sitting there and mm. people are filled with um, anger and pity and terror, terror of that darkness that maybe we all share, which I strongly believe that we do. Um, I, I think that's why... I think the fear of the darkness that, that all of us contain is why some people um, don't want to read 
this book or don't want to read books like this. They, they say to me, I, I, I can't read it. Or a friend of mine, a friend of mine told me that he went to his local bookshop and he'd read the book and uh, he was talking to the woman who ran this bookshop. This is in Mel- a Melbourne suburb. And uh, the subject of my book came up and she said, oh, no, I'm not going to read that book. And he said, why not? And she said, well, I haven't read it, but I know that nowhere in this book does she say that Robert Farquharson is a monster. And I thought that gave me a, 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 a bolt of lightning. I thought that's what it is. People can't stand to think that, that I haven't said he's a monster. And I thought, well, if he was a monster, I wouldn't be interested in writing a book about him. Mm. Uh, and people wouldn't even be interested in reading a book unless they wanted to kind of get off on a, on um, a psychopath. Or mm. I'm not interested in writing about psychopaths or serial killers or people like that because because they're. I'm interested in in writing it about people who aren't that different from me, or I mm. feel that they're not that different from me and and everyone else I know. But one day they do something so terrible that they could never have foreseen it and all the people who love them could never have foreseen it. And I think that's where people get scared because they think maybe I too might be driven one day beyond my endurance or that, yeah. And I think that's part of the fascination, isn't it? Isn't that the appeal of why we all watch shows like Broadchurch and Happy Valley and the sort of, you know, huge kind of explosion of crime and the appetite for, re- for reading and watching or consuming crime as, as television drama, as entertainment? Do you watch any of those shows or is that not what you... Oh, no, I don't actually. But although recently I... Um, well, how this happened was... I um, I went to this health farm that I go to occasionally with this friend of mine, and she was. And normally at the health farm, I just you know hardly eat anything and just lie in the bed and bludge. And but she but she that was my idea of a health farm. But she was in a, a, a worse state than I was. She was very you know in a, in, a, in a bad way with work and things mm-hmm. were really on top of her. And she said, "Look, I, I just want to watch some some a, a couple of." crime series on TV and I'm going, but it's summer, you know, we could be outside under the trees. Anyway, I agreed to just out of, you know, friendliness. I thought, okay. So we watched that one called The Bridge and I just, I got totally hooked on it. It surprised me. I thought, oh, I'm going to die of boredom. And then I realised that those two main characters that are the, the um, you know, the slightly autistic woman detective and, mm. and that sweet guy who was busy messing up his life. Well, I, I sort of loved them and I wanted to know what... They were more interesting to me than the crime, actually. Mm. And then I started to watch that French one called Spiral. Mm-hmm. And I thought... Eh. I watched, I don't know, two series of that and I, I was really interested in it because it gave me an insight into the way the French legal system works, which is an inquisitorial system yeah. as distinct from an adversarial like the one we have. And I was interested in that. And then after a while I thought, I'm sick of watching all this violence. I'm sick of it. And so I just stopped looking and I haven't gone back since then. Mm. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned the health farm because I wondered whether you could talk a little bit about what the toll is on you of writing a book like this. What's the aftermath like physically and psychologically? Is it 
Is it a flood of relief or is it an anticlimax? Do you often become ill after you've written a book with a kind of, you know, it's like when you go on holiday, usually the first week when you're on holiday, you're sick because you're so <laughs> tired from work yeah. and stress. So what, what happens to you after the intensity of a book like this or Joe Cinque? Oh, well, I can tell you exactly because it happened to me in a very sh sharp form this time. What happened was I was invited to go to a couple of literary festivals in England. Uh, when was this? Last April, I think. And so I booked my flights and I thought, oh, by that time the book will be well away and gone. And, uh, but as it happened, um, there were some delays and, and I was still correcting proofs on the plane to England. And I corrected the proofs and when I got there, you know, I sent them back. And, and then I, I was going to stay with a friend of mine in London for, for a week and, and I, in fact, did. But I felt so bad. I, it's hard to explain how terrible I felt. I, I felt completely um, sort of skinless. Uh, I, and I thought I, I lost a sense of who, who I was. And um, I didn't know what to do all day. When I was actually at home with my friend, we just talked and laughed and I felt completely normal. But when, during the day when she was working and I, I just walked around the streets and I thought, I'm going nuts. I'm actually losing it. I didn't know where to go. I got lost. I, I, I broke a tooth. And when I went to the dentist, I couldn't find the dentist. And, and I had to go back the next day and you know, I went into this, denti <laughs> this dentist's surgery. And I said, oh, I'm terribly sorry I didn't come yesterday. I, I just got lost and I, I didn't know where I was and I, I didn't have your phone number and I think I'm having an ex existential crisis. <laughs> and, and he said, he was a really sweet old man, and he said, don't worry, we'll just fix your tooth first. So, <laughs> so he fixed my tooth and then as I was getting out of the chair, at the end he said, um, are you a psychotherapist? And I said, no, what made you think that? And he said, um, Oh, he said, my wife's a psychotherapist and she uses expressions like existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so that made me feel a bit better. But so you're, what you're describing there is that you're kind of raw from it, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, and sort I was of just lost. I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I thought, why am I here? I didn't know why I was even there. And, and I, I thought, I, I don't exist. I felt that I didn't exist. It was horrible. It was an existential crisis. And I put it down to, you know, I, I was, it, it was just the timing of everything. I probably mm. could have been okay if I, if I hadn't had to leave before the thing was over. Because, um, I mean, this was a particularly difficult and drawn out um, uh, book to write. And at one stage you walked away from it and you decided that you did not want to mm. carry on with this story, that it was just taking too great a toll on you. Yeah. Um, so... I'm wondering whether you might like to read a little bit from the diary that you kept at sure. the time that you were writing this book and that you were experiencing those doubts. She asked me to, to, to do this, so that's why I'm prepared. <laughs> I don't usually walk around with 20 volumes of diary in my bag. I once tried to ask, persuade Helen to sing a song and play the ukulele at a festival and that didn't work, so we resorted to the diary as a fallback position. <laughs> It's better, you believe me. <laughs> so anyway, she asked me if I would dig up some diary stuff about this period, and so I did. 
And these, there's two and a bit pages, just so you'll know there's not that much. But um, it kind of, they're, they're just some chunks that I pulled out that, that covered a f few months. Uh, and these excerpts were written after Farquharson's first trial and before the appeal against his conviction, at his first trial, he got three life sentences and no parole date, which is a very, very heavy sentence in modern Australia, not, not to have a date, you know, to have no chance at all of ever applying for parole. So he got a huge sentence. I feel very disheartened about the Farquharson book. I sat on the office floor for hours, ploughing through the witness statements, hearing those fabulous country voices we get some weird cunts out here, as the first witness said when he described seeing Farquharson wet from the dam, hailing cars on the dark highway. But once more, I became overwhelmed by the horror of what happened and rode home on my bike saying over and over, I can't do this, I can't stand the pain, I can't stand the pain. Yesterday, I despaired, but today I wrote a paragraph that seemed usable and my whole attitude changed. In War and Peace, I come across a remark of Tolstoy's on how wars come about. No one thing is the cause. I wonder how I can apply this to Farquharson. Email from a journalist I know, John. He has seen the video of the police interview with Farquharson and is convinced that he is innocent. The journalist gives an account of how he imagines things happened when the car went into the water. Suddenly, I'm wondering if my instincts about it all have been terribly wrong if my initial doubts were swept away by other people's certainty of Farquharson's guilt. I'm very shaken by this. Every time I think about it, I'm filled with a sort of gaping horror. And yet when I think of what little I've actually written, for example, the tiny encounter when Farquharson held the court door open for me, I see that I haven't yet come down on either side. In fact, I'm hovering agonisedly on the fence. What on earth will I do? There's only one thing I can do, keep writing. Make the book an account of my engagement with this story rather than claiming to have understood it and what it means. I must try harder to understand the physics of the way the car went into the dam. I will have to do some hard mental labour, what the philosopher Iris Murdoch calls the kind of thinking that hurts. <laughs> Every time I start to panic, I think, just go ahead quietly and document all this panic and fear. Nothing else will be truthful. Again and again, I remind myself that nothing I've written so far is heading inexorably towards a conclusion that he's guilty. I've set the thing up almost unintentionally to balance on the cusp of unknowing. If only I can manage to keep it there. If I can make people feel the anguish of Cindy Gambino's evidence, the knotted cord of agony that held her and Robbie together across that courtroom. I can do this. I think I'm a good enough writer to do this and not to do it would be cowardly. I found myself during a boring concert, dreaming, see I am boreable, <laughs> dreaming of giving up the struggle to write this book and becoming a grandmother without reservation. <laughs> I thought, I'll give up my rented office and just have the little workroom at home and maybe some short stories will float to the surface or maybe they won't. Maybe I've come to the end of myself as a writer. <laughs> Today I wrote to work and wrote, and wrote 500 words about the two young men who were flagged down by Farquharson on the road after he'd left the car in the dam and run away. I got to the bit where this sweet, goofy, barely articulate, unemployed mill worker of 24 was asked by the prosecutor if he had given in to Farquharson's pressure and left the dam to drive him back to his ex-wife's house. The young bloke on the witness stand hung his head 
and said in a low voice, yes, I did the stupidest thing in my life and I did. At this point, I began to howl and couldn't stop for ages. I bawled and sobbed. Then I cleaned up the mess of what I'd written and made it as right as I could. Then I got on my bike and pedalled home. Three days later, I think I'll have to put the whole thing down. I haven't got the energy or the heart. Every time I go into my office, I feel oppressed by the story. The transcripts there on the shelves, folder after folder of it, a thick wall. The notebooks, the photos, the press clippings, the whole room is choked with it. I can hardly breathe in there. The thought of giving up, of not having to do it, is almost intoxicating. It hovers at the farthest point of my vision, like the meaning of life when you're tripping on acid, a delicious little shimmer, almost within view, but not quite. I know why I'm stalled with the book. The form is wrong. I mean the genre. I'm resisting going back into the harness of non-fiction, into that strangling contract with its literal mindedness. I wake at five in the morning and lie here trying to map it out as a novel in third person. Smoothly it unrolls, as unwritten books do in the dark before dawn, far from the desk. <laughs> I think calmly, yes, that's how I'll do it. I'll move it technically towards a novel, but remain faithful to the facts as I know them. I'll change all the names. <laughs> all, all the while, though, a lawyer figure stands off to one side, making a list of the defamatory possibilities of such a novel <laughs> as they blossom along the idea's bare branches. And every time I allow my thoughts to wander towards the possibility of freedom, they come up hard against the people of the story. I can't help thinking of them by their first names. The drowned boys, Jay, Tyler, Bailey, their mother, Cindy, Jeremy, the prosecutor, Peter, the defence counsel, Philip, the judge, and the police search and rescue diver who found the children in the sunken car, Rebecca, with her huge heavy wristwatch and her short cropped fair hair and her graceful gestures on the witness stand. How can I ever abandon this magnificent material? What could I invent to match its ferocious realness? This story will haunt me forever if I don't get it down. Am I a ghoul with my heart dragging behind me in the dust? I better buckle on my harness and trudge on. Oh. Helen, um, we had Rosie Batty here earlier today and I wondered whether you could tell us what you think are the essential differences between Rosie Batty and Cindy Gambino. I think Rosie Batty... I met Rosie once and I interviewed her and I did a brief piece about her for the monthly... And I think she's probably the most highly evolved person I've ever met in my life. Uh, there's something, <laughs> there's some quality in her that I've never encountered before. I, um, I don't know what that quality is or where it comes from or how she found in herself the strength that she's got and the kind of... Um, she, it seems that w what she suffered ha hasn't um, distorted or embittered her. Hasn't warped her. No, so. no. And I don't know how. I, I don't know how she's saved herself, maybe. I don't know what it is. Cindy Gambino, I never met. Mm. I, I met her parents. 
several times, but and I, I saw Cindy in court, and uh, I, I was terribly sort of racked by her um, testimony, especially in the first trial when she um, flatly refused to believe that her former husband had um, killed their children. She just would not believe it. But um, she lost three children and in, in a blow. And, and I, I think that, in my experience, mothers think everything's their fault. Mm. Um, you know, that's a very broad statement but that seems to be the default position. We can reason ourselves out of it, but um, we, we, our relationship with our children is so extremely intimate that I don't know how to end that sentence. Well, you, you, you wanted to speak to her and she um, rebuffed you. She, would, she wouldn't speak to you. Yeah, I didn't approach her directly. I approached her through her mother. Mm. Uh, her parents are lovely people. Uh, I adored them and, and we got on very well. We used to hang around having a coffee outside yes. the court. But but um, I, I, I wrote a letter to Cindy's yeah. mother and, and asked if she would. And, and the mother said, look, she can't put one foot in front of the other. If she doesn't want to do this. So I accepted that. And I, can I just say, mm. and that's one reason why, um, that's one reason why the book is different from, say, Joe Cinque. Right. Because... Uh, and, and going further back, the first stone. Those two, those two um, um, non-fiction books I did, I fell into the same trap in both of them. That is, that I got one side of the story and not the other, mm -hmm. and I had to write my way around that sort of technically. And I thought, when and when Farquharson sisters rebuffed my quite politely said they didn't want to be interviewed, and when I realised that Cindy didn't want to talk to me either, I thought, I thought, hey. Suddenly I became tactical, and I'm so not tactical. I thought, this is my moment where I can back away from this story. I don't have to get in there. And, I, and I'm so glad I did that, because otherwise I don't know what would have come up in, in terms of emotional, you know, existential crisis for me and everyone else involved. Well, I wondered whether it made your job harder or easier, in fact, that you were not as attached to one particular side of the story as mm. you quite clearly were in, in both of the previous books. So you've, you've answered that question. I'm kind of amazed in the book when you um, um, explain or, you know, when Cindy Gambino explains why she's changed her opinion mm. of whether or not her husband did it, it seems such a trivial point that she uses. Can you, can you just talk about what it is that is the turning point for her? Well, Cindy Gambino <coughs> gave into... Uh, she, her new husband did a, um, some sort of deal with a... I forget which media outlet it was... In other words, she sold the story, mm. and uh, I'm not criticising her for that, but uh, she did, and it meant that she um, had to do some interviews with certain women's magazines spaced out over a certain period. And that was basically my access to her way of thinking. And uh, the kind of... The way those articles were written um, partook of the kind of thing that I spend my whole working life try, trying not to partake of, which is kind of pulp. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of things in those articles were expressed in the kind of um, rather sentimentalised 
cliche language that terrible experience sometimes brings up in, in um, you know, that's what those magazines are for, you know, they're, they're just going to churn out this mm. stuff. So um, I don't know if... Um, so so w why I'm saying that is because obviously her change, the, so that in the first trial she stuck up for her former husband, by the, by the second trial she had turned against him big time mm. and she became his nemesis, basically, mm. which was an incredible spectacle in the court. Mm. But, um, but, in she, the but, but what I'm saying is in those magazines, which was my only source of information to her about her, you know, sort of changing thoughts, uh, there were these little peaks that stuck up, you know, like out of a fog, a, a little mountain peak, and, and I would seize upon those. And they weren't exactly... Um, articulations of what was in there, uh, in her mind as it changed, but there are things that I felt, fr not free, but yeah, free, I felt that I could interpret them in some psychological way. So it's not as if she suddenly said, oh, he wouldn't accept my, my visit. I, I tried to go, to, you know, I wrote these letters to him and he wouldn't, he wouldn't accept my visit in jail. And, and, he, he, and he, said he'd, he said I could come and see him after the eldest boy's birthday and then he changed his mind. And he changed his mind again and I'm just fed up with this and so now I'm going to, now I believe that he really did it. Yeah. I mean, that's what it said in the article. But uh, there was in her, I think, one of those slow tidal waves of... She had a kind of carapace on her that she just could not bear to believe that, that her husband had, had, had done this appalling thing. Mm. But, but I don't know what people around her were saying to her. I imagine for a long time they tiptoed around her because her suffering was so terrible and so enormous and so profound. But gradually I think that carapace just sort of chipped off and, mm. and underneath was the ability to see what really happened. Mm. You stayed friends with Joe Cinque's parents um, after the um, terrible case, and I was just wondering what that's been like for you, what that friendship means to you, what that relationship gives you. Mm. Well, Maria and Nino Cinque are Joe Cinque's parents, and... Uh, I'm still friendly with them. I, they live in Newcastle and I ha have a lot to do with Newcastle. I've got friends there and I often go there. And whenever I go there, I go and spend a day with them. I mean, they're the sort of people that you don't just drop in for half an hour. I, I get there, we have a coffee and we sit down at the kitchen table and we're still there, you know, six hours later, <laughs> laughing. I mean, the thing about it is that um, although their family has been, was destroyed by this death and they lost their son and their second son is also lost in his own way, although he's still alive. Um, and her grandchildren are lost to her, to them. Mm. Um, I don't know, Maria Cinque, she's like a figure out of a Greek myth. She's so... She'd be furious if I said she was like a Greek. She'd want me to be like <laughs> she was like an Italian. But I, I, I don't know what it is about her. She's... Um, when we talk on the phone quite often, and we always talk for half an hour or more, and, by the, and she, she often has terrible things to tell me because her, their lives mm. are destroyed, you know, mm. and, they, and they struggle on. But uh, and always she says to me, tell me about your grandchildren, Helen. How is your family going? And she really wants to know. She's not just pretending. Mm. And when I go there, somehow, I don't know, we eat, we drink, we, we just laugh and gossip. And um, she's a really funny woman. She's... Uh, I've, what I get from her is 
just this sense of power. She's probably the most powerful person I've ever met, although Rosie Batty's up there. I was there. just going to say, yeah. there's something common to those two yeah. women and there's yeah, something heroic there about both of these women in their loss and their resilience yeah. and Just their being strengths. able to go on after mm. what you loved most deeply has been taken from you by violence is... Um, uh, I mean, I feel, you know, when I'm with Rosie Batty or with, um, if I'm with Maria Cinque, I feel sort of lightweight. Know what I mean? <laughs> I thought, I mean, God forbid that I should find out Quite. what it is to be, to go through what they've experienced. But I, um, you know, I mean, I always imagine when I go to Marie's that I'm going to... Um, that it'll be like visiting a mighty monument. I still have that feeling. <laughs> that's, but then I walk in, she goes, Ellen, come in. And she gives me a big hug and kiss and come have a coffee. And it's really just another person. But at the same time, she's got this monumental um, sort of might about her. And so is Rosie. Mm. It, mm. It's a very mysterious thing. In complete contrast to that kind of strength and power that you get from both of those women, I'm interested in your sort of, um, your comments on masculinity in this book um, and what you've learned about masculinity from writing this book. You talk in a very sort of, there's just a little aside at one moment where you talk about the, um, the charisma of tradies. <laughs> yeah, they're sexy. They're sexy, are they? <laughs> well, you know, some of them aren't, but hey, just in my office, my, my famous office that's, that I can't breathe in, mm. um, <laughs> well, I go for lunch at this cafe, which is near, near my office, there's a new hospital being built. And so there's all these tradies and, and um, labourers and they go to the same cafe to get their lunch. And, and I start to go to this cafe <laughs> just because it's the nearest one. Sure. And I... <laughs> <laughs> So I went there, and the first few times I went there, there were all these cunt guys in shorts and with mud on them and everything. And I'm going, wow, it's nice in here. I like it. And I couldn't figure out why. And I always felt great when I came out. And it's not just that I, that, um, you know, they're sort of guys who they've got all that gear on and all the high vis, and they barge in with their big boots, and they, they tend to have nice manners, and they stand back after you, madam, sort of thing, at the counter. Okay, thank you. But, but, um, but I figured afterwards that testosterone must exude into the air. And so when I walk in there, I'm breathing it in. And I go back to work and I think, geez, I feel good. I feel really sort of healthy. <laughs> we thought we were going to those places for the coffee. It turns out to be something else yeah. altogether. Because you talk about um, Robert Farquharson as a, as a character to write. He was singularly lacking in charisma. So you've got these kind of sexy tradies, a couple of them who come and give evidence, and then you've got a man who's sort of a, a lump, mm. isn't he? There's just nothing, nothing to feed off for you there in his no, presence, just is there? sadness, yeah. What did you learn, do you think? Did you learn anything in particular about masculinity, the oh. vulnerability, the frailty of masculinity. Yes, I did. And I learnt about... Um, I learnt... It seems to me that Farquharson's a good example of the kind of bloke of which there are a lot in, in, in any society. I think the world is full of men whose hearts are broken and who have no way of expressing their feelings, even to themselves. And, and those are the men who can become dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. I, I think I was very struck by in the, the story of Farquharson and how um, 
he he was obviously in a depressed state towards the end of the marriage, and his wife and they and his wife. Uh, oh, I could, there's a whole novel in there, but I'm not going to write it. But um, what is it about him? He, he was driving her crazy because he was so depressed and gloomy, and he had mood swings and. And, and, and she was saying, listen, you're depressed. You're suffering from depression. You've got to do something about this because it's unbearable. We can't stand it around here. You, you're kind of really hard to take. And he said, no, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. And um, so finally she persuades him. Meanwhile, she's met the tradie who she actually hired to pour the concrete slab on the house that they were building. And he was a new guy in town. He had his own broken marriage, you know, he'd moved to the town and he was trying to set up his life again. And then he meets Cindy, who's this frustrated, sad, irritated person with a dull husband. And um, usually I get this far in the, of telling people the story, and that, that it used to be before I actually wrote the book, and people I was talking to would say, you're making excuses. That again and again people would say that to me as if to try to understand this man was to excuse what he did or to think that it wasn't the most abominable and appalling thing. But um, anyway, so, uh, so she finally persuades him to go to the doctor. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm cranky with the kids, I I'm, I'm, can't sleep, I'm, you know, he lists his symptoms. And so the GP, who gave evidence in court and seemed like a really nice guy, said, oh, here, well, here's a here prescription for um, Zoloft. So that, that's number one thing that you do when some poor bastard comes in. And, and, and so that wasn't working. And, and, uh, and so the next thing that happens is, uh, you know, they sort of up the ante and then, then the wife dumps him. And uh, then he comes on the day that she called off the marriage. Uh, he goes back to the GP and the GP did his best with him. You know, he sort of sat him down and had a good talk and... And then he said, then, then he gets more and more miserable, and then, then he sends him to a, a psychologist. And the psychologist, uh, as he professionally was obliged to, said, "Have you had any thoughts of suicide?" Mm. And Farquharson said, "Yes, I have." So, of course, the psychologist's professional duty is to tell this to the the GP. Um, and he writes a letter to the GP, but he didn't mention the word suicide in the letter. You know, he thought, um, ha have you had, uh, um, I can't remember what, how he actually, self-harm mm. or, you know, something, some kind of... Euphemism. Yeah, some euphemism. And uh, I, I don't know, I just thought, if only a man like that, who's mad with rage, the next thing he said, and, and grief, you know, he's been turfed out, he's not living with his kids anymore, his wife's all bright and sparkling because she's taken up with this other guy who he hates and who's soon to be seen driving his Farquharson's car around town. And, you know, humiliation and humiliation mm. was piled upon him and he had a broken heart and he, was, he had to move back in with his father. You know, he's 30 and his mum's died and he loved his mum and she's dead and everything's wrong. And somehow... I thought, where could he go? He couldn't talk to his friends. They didn't want to hear his... Because mm. he was a whinger. You know, it came out in evidence. Oh, Robbie was always whinging. And when he tried, to, you know, when he talked to us about the marriage breakup, we just thought, oh, it's just Robbie talking shit again. Mm. That his friends would say things like that. And um, I, I just... It sort of broke my heart to think about this 
poor bastard trudging along the road. He's lost his wife. He's lost his kids. And, and he's sort he, of been humiliated because the humiliated other bloke's driving him. his car. Yeah, and, and that whole thing about the car... The car was is, crucial. ...is not to be taken lightly. Mm. I mean, men, men and cars, country men and cars, you can't deny the, the, the symbolic importance of the car mm. in, in a man's life. Anyway, so there's this... Nobody... Who's going to talk to him? Who's gonna, and, and there are these terrible tapes that were played in court when the police actually wired his best friend and sent, sent him in to talk about the famous fish and chip shop conversation at which he, you know, he raved and said he was... told his best friend he was going to take revenge on his wife and do mm. something bad to the kids. The police wired this friend, said, go round to Farquhar's and sit round with him and, and tape the conversation and raise the matter of this fish and chip shop threats in the conversation. So he goes round there and th- these tapes exist of Farquharson and three of his male friends sitting together a f- two or three days after all his children had drowned in the dam. And they're just talking about football and they're talking and they're watching TV and you can hear the sort of explosions and guns going off and, and Americans shouting and, and, and you're thinking, this guy is there. His life is... His children are dead and maybe he killed them. We don't know yet. But somehow nobody could... Nobody could say to him, how are you? Mm-hmm. What's on your mind? You know, do you sleep at night? Can you sleep? They can't ask. They can't talk. And he can't raise the subject. And I just... Oh, that just broke my heart. And, 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 and he did eventually go and see a counsellor. And that seemed to be... He was... That seemed to be helping him. And, but this counsellor gave evidence in court and he said, well, you know, at a certain point, I spaced out the visits more and more and I said to him, fine, you know, he seemed to be dealing with his marriage breakup with so much dignity and maturity that I thought, well, you know, you don't need to come and see me anymore. <laughs> and Farquharson said, oh, but I, I, I want to keep coming and seeing you because this is really useful to me, the talks that we have. And I don't know how many more of those there were, but in some pathetic way, you know, that was about the only time he... He used to say, oh, I'm to really him. annoyed. I'm annoyed with my wife, he used to say. I'm annoyed with her. And, and obviously, he didn't have the language to, to, to express what was surging around inside him. Mm. We've got about five minutes left. I can't understand how this has happened. But um, if you... If you um, there's Helen time and then there's everybody else time. Um, if you've got a question for Helen, um, you will be able to ask at the signing afterwards. But if you'd like to make your way to a microphone in the meantime and just take um, the last couple of minutes to ask a question, um, please feel free to do so. There are microphones numbered one and two over here. Um, what's what's next for you, Helen, now? Oh, I don't know. I haven't got a project. What I... do you do in between books? I just hang around at home. I, 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 well, I mess around with my grandchildren and I try and make things grow in the garden, that sort of thing. I'm really bad at that. Lady here has a question for you. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, um, regards um, Rosie Batty, uh, my father once, when he was dying talked about how he wished he had faith, like some of his friends. Rosie Batty, I believe, is a devout Christian, and uh, her uh, Luke went to a Christian school. Would that be the answer to her, 
her strength, does she believe mm-hmm. in that sort of forgiveness in that Christian sense, do you think? Uh, well, just in my short conversation, well, short conversation, I, I was with her for a couple of hours, but uh, I didn't ask her that question directly, but her discourse sounded to me more kind of Buddhist than Christian. Mm. But I'm, I, I'm, I don't think it's a matter of in her... Look, I can't speak for Rosie, but it, it didn't seem to me that she was... It was a matter of forgiveness. I mean, she was glad that, her, that Luke's father was dead, she said to me, you know, she said I, he was the sort of person who had to be removed. That was the word she used. Mm. I, I don't think it was a matter of forgiveness. But I, I asked Maria Chikwe one time, I said, is your, because she was a Catholic, I said, uh, is your religious faith in, any use to you? And she said, no, nah, I don't go there anymore. Uh, it has confused me yeah. with Rosie Batty, I'm mm. afraid. Yeah, well, I'm going to ask her next time I see her. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Next question. Hi. Um, I just wanted to know, as a writer, how did you decide um, to sort of put yourself into a story like that? It's obviously, like, it reminds me a lot of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. And how how do you decide that this is the story I'm going to follow with? And beside all the doubts which everyone gets, how do you ignore that and just keep going and know this is what I'm going to continue with? I know it's a good story. And then eventuate and and hold yourself together. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, as that diary probably showed, I, um, I had a lot of... Um, it was really hard. And, and I mean, I feel a bit pathetic sitting here saying, oh, God, how I suffered. You know, when the people I was writing about know what real suffering is. But, but, but writing... Well, in a sense, the writing's the only way I know how to make sense of things. So, so in a way, that's how I save myself, is by, from despair, is by writing. Um, and uh, yeah. see, I've been doing it for a long time now, and I've got a, I've developed a lot of habits of of how to save myself from despair because I do suffer what from. What are your tips? <laughs> <laughs> I, I write a diary every day, and I write. Um, I, I practice. I practice writing. I, I think you know if there's anyone else here who's you know, sort of in the early stages of, of a life of being a writer, you've got to practice. So, so writing a diary isn't really about um, expressing yourself so much as it's about handling language mm-hmm. and practising that every day. I do it every day and it's not a discipline anymore. If I didn't do it, I'd just kind of have to keel over and die. I mean, it's essential to me and I, and I find too that um, as... The, that's how you learn to. That's how you learn to put a good sentence together. You practice, and writing your dreams down is another good way of practicing. Not because you're looking for meaning in them. That's a whole another question. But just because learning to use language about something that you think is inexpressible, a dream is a perfect example of that. So it's it's discipline. It's just it's a harness. But there's a fantastic French writer who said, when he was starting to write another book, he said, um, so once more, with joy, I buckle on the hateful harness. (laughs) Thank you. Good luck. (laughs) 
I think that's been a recurring theme here today and, and those of you that were lucky enough to hear Elizabeth Gilbert talk about creativity would recognise that there are some definite crossovers in terms of techniques to apply between Helen and between Elizabeth. Thank you so much for your candour with us today. Please thank Thanks, Helen Garner. Thank you.